Good morning, everybody. My name is Jenny Seibel. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity, and it's good to be with you this morning. We're going to continue our study in the Gospel of Mark. We've been in the first chapter of Mark for several weeks now, really studying the theology that Mark presents in the beginning of his Gospel. He goes from kind of one big statement to another really quickly throughout this Gospel, and he uses the word immediately over and over again to kind of take us through and see that he's really building on something, building a vision for us of who it is that Jesus is. We've been studying what it means that Jesus Jesus came as the Son of God. Um, we've been thinking about the theological and social implications of that, um, what the implications are in heaven and on earth for who Jesus is and the fact that he came to earth. So last week, we kind of had a really heady and hard and um, really uh, thought-provoking text and sermon after that. And so um, what we're going to do today is more devotional, and I'm really grateful for that, but says a lot about what Mark is trying to do. He's building a vision for us of who Jesus is. So we're going to start by reading the text, and then we'll pray, and then we'll see what Jesus has for us today. We're going to start in Mark 1, verse 29. As soon as they'd left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and then the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sunset, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons, and the whole city was gathered around the door, and he cured many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. In the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. And Simon and his companions hunted for him. When they found him, they said to him, Everyone is searching for you. He answered, Let us go on to the neighboring town so that I may proclaim the message there also. For that is what I came out to do. And he went throughout Galilee proclaiming the message in the synagogues and casting out demons. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you this morning so grateful for your heart, for the work that you came to earth to do, Lord, to um, show us the heart of the Father, to be God in the flesh for us, so that there is no more questions about your intentions for us and for the world that we could enter into life with you in our own bodies, with your own body, Lord. That we could think about the ways in which you came for us and what you do for us, Lord. We ask you, Jesus, this morning, would you expand our minds to see you more clearly, to see you as one worthy of our trust, worthy of our lives. Help us to see you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So we've been doing a lot of thinking and studying around what Jesus' identity is. We've talked a lot about that over the past few weeks. And in this text, like I said, we kind of see the heart of who Jesus is. Jesus revealing the Father's heart to us. We know that Jesus is the key to God's nature and intentions. And here we see that nature kind of fully on display in his relating with Peter and the other disciples. I'm going to say Peter. In the text it says Simon, but I can't get it out of my head that Jesus changes his name to Peter, and that's what we typically call him. So if you hear me say that, that's why. 
Um, we've been talking about these kind of theological and social and political implications that Jesus is the real and true king. He's the son of God. He's the real good news. You know, all of these really important things that he came to stand opposed to all things or stand against all things that are opposed to his love. And the same Jesus, powerful and authoritative, we see here that he's also out to earn our trust, out to seek intimacy with us. The intimacy with us is actually part of his plan of salvation. What we see in this text is these disciples, these four young men that Jesus has called. Historically, we can, um, from what we know about Jewish history at this time, what we know is that these disciples were probably teenagers. Honestly, anywhere from about 12 to 20. Peter was likely probably the oldest of all of them because we know from this text in particular that he has a mother-in-law. So he's probably married and more in his early 20s. But the rest of these were likely really young. And so that helps me a lot of times when I'm thinking about this text, because what it does is it gives me a vision of, of the, the young hearts Jesus is dealing with in, in his ministry. These people who are closest to him were really young. And what do you need to do with young people if, if you've ever worked with them? Um, you have to earn their trust. And what Jesus does in this text is he's showing us how he's beginning to do that with those who are following him the closest during his life here on earth. So we start with this scene with Peter's mother-in-law in in Peter's house. So we come out of this really intense scene in the temple with this demon-possessed man. These young kids, you know, these boys are just starting to follow Jesus. They they're, he's now their rabbi. It's a really exciting time for them. They've said yes. You know, they left their boats and they go into the temple with Jesus and Jesus does this thing. He reveals himself as one who not only teaches with authority, but lives out that authority. He actually casts out a demon from a man in front of them as his first kind of big act in his ministry. And you can imagine this was probably a very scary thing for these disciples, that they, they see Jesus not just as a really good and interesting teacher, but they're, they're realizing that they've kind of gotten themselves into something, perhaps. And so there's a really beautiful comparison of this powerful moment in the temple to this simple moment of healing a fever. You expect a holy man to do holy things in the temple, but you don't expect a holy man to go into your house and heal someone in your very own home. What we see here. Um, with this fever, which I think of, of all the things I can think that Jesus healed is maybe the most simple. And the reason I think that is, is because we're meant to be seeing the kind of miracle behind the miracle. What Jesus is doing in this moment is he's earning the trust of his disciples. Um, and he does this throughout the gospels in these small ways. We see Jesus healing people over and over again, but this moment happening in Peter's house to someone that he loves, I believe is meant for us to, we're meant to see that this is an intimate thing that's happening, a restoration of a relationship, a trust earning scenario. And I'm reminded of all the ways when I read this text of the ways that Jesus has done that throughout my life, that there are simple ways that Jesus meets with me and earns my trust throughout my life, you know, in my daily scripture reading and prayer, of course, those ways. But there are also meant, we are meant to have these kinds of cornerstone moments for ourselves. Um, like Peter is having in this moment, these kind of um, really big moments that happen in our lives that are trust-earning moments between us and God. And I want to tell you about one of those moments in my own life because I think it's helpful to have a vision for what that can look like and helps us to have kind of eyes to see and ears to hear the way that God works in our lives to build these moments for us. So when I was in college, which was, if you've ever listened to me preach before, you've heard me talk about how 
most of my life has been a dark and hard time. Um, and so this was another one of those in college, having a very hard time, um, sitting on my bed and holding my Bible and just desperately needing God to tell me something, tell me something good or speak to me about something. And so I did that thing that's, you know, Bible roulette where you open the page and you are convinced that whatever's on there is what God's going to say to you in that moment. In this instance, it worked. It hasn't worked a lot of other times in my life, but so I open my Bible and the only thing underlined on the whole page, and I'm, I like to underline things, um, is a phrase that says, whatever touches you touches the apple of his eye. And it felt like God was saying something to me in that. And yet it was, it's always so easy to write it off, you know, to really want something to be happening, but then to say like something else, coincidence or whatever it may be. But I really wanted it to be something. So throughout the next few weeks, I started to see apples everywhere. Like weird things, not just like, you know, a friend eating an apple, but like one, one time I was getting, I was going somewhere and I got, I parked my car, got out of the door and like right where my foot was about to step was like a perfect apple. Um, weird things like that, that kept coming up. And I, I kept just writing them off as coincidences, like having the desire for it to be more than that, but, but thinking it maybe was a coincidence. And I started to get the sense after months of these things happening that maybe God was trying to tell me that he loved me which was a really hard thing for me to understand at the time. I was kind of in a point in my spirituality where I was convinced he didn't and that I was, st I was still choosing to follow him despite that, that I wanted God to use me whether he loved me or not. And God was desperately trying to speak to me because he speaks in a language that's not ours, you know, and speaks in different ways. And he was desperately trying to tell me that he loved me. So these things keep happening over and over again. I, that summer, I go visit a friend who's living in Washington, D.C. for the summer. And we go visit Arlington Cemetery, not just because I'm an Enneagram 4 and I like graveyards, but because my uncle is actually buried in Arlington, my dad's youngest brother who died when he was in college, um, right before I was born, actually. I was named on his behalf, which is another story. But So I like to go visit his gravesite when I'm in Arlington. It feels... Um, special to go see him. So um, we walk all the way back there. It's like in the back of Arlington where things aren't very uniform. They're kind of a little overgrown and the tombstones are different. It's really lovely back there. So we go back there. It's a Sunday morning and I'm like ready to have church. I like sit down um, on the grass and I'm ready to meet God. And I sit there for a long time and nothing happens. And so I get bored and I start looking around the ground and I find this teeny tiny little green apple and of course again I'm like this has this is a crazy coincidence that this is happening here you know and then um and then I look around more and I see another one and then I realize I'm actually sitting in a little spot where there's just I mean I'm surrounded by apples these little green apples and I look up and he's the grave is right in front of me and underneath this grave is this, um, or above this grave is this uh, giant apple tree that has been like raining down these tiny apples for the month that I was there. And, um, and I was literally surrounded by the thing that God was attempting to tell me over the last few months. I love you. Whatever touches you touches the apple of my eye. And it, I, it was an undeniable moment and it earned my trust in a way that has sustained me since then and will for the rest of my life. Have I had another moment in my life this momentous? I have not. But I, 
I ought not to need moments like that all the time from God. In the same way I don't force, you know, my husband to, to do these giant acts of trustworthiness for me all the time so that I can trust him. We've had these big moments of trust throughout our lives and those are the things that sustain us from day to day and God is the same. We ought to not demand these moments from him, but let the small moments sustain us and these large moments kind of be the overarching theme of our life, the words that God is speaking over us. What I find really beautiful about this text too, that's very much worth mentioning, is that this miracle that happens, this healing that happens is for Peter, but it happens to someone else that Peter in this moment is able to look at this healing that happens, this miracle within his own home and say, this was for me. This was a, earning, a trust earning moment with Jesus for Peter. And I wonder how many times you and I miss the ways that God is proving himself trustworthy through the lives of other people because we're demanding it for ourselves. So what happens after this moment is, is really beautiful. Um, out of this moment of trust earning for Peter and these disciples, this relationship building, a whole community starts to come to this house and be healed. So if you can imagine the scenario, like this is Peter's home, you know, and it says that the entire town starts coming to be healed. And so what happens here is that Peter's little house that like who, who knew it would be anything becomes an actual center for healing. Out of this moment of trust with Jesus, a whole town is transformed. These moments of miracles, these trust earning places that we have with Jesus are meant to make us, our spaces, the kinds of things that are trustworthy on behalf of Jesus. We're meant to then take on the trust that we've earned with Jesus and be Jesus to other people, be the believable ones in the world. This is the fishers of people stuff Jesus was talking about. I'm going to do these things for you and then you are going to do these things for other people and that's how my, my trust is going to be earned throughout the world. What Jesus gives us away in our healing is meant to be given away tenfold. We're the believable ones. There's this really lovely story in a book called Tokens of Trust by Rowan Williams, which I've, I've, I've read a lot for this sermon. So if you are interested in some of the things I'm saying, it's a really good book to go pick up. This woman named Eddie Halisum, who was a young Jewish woman who died in the gas chambers in Auschwitz. But before that, we have lots of several of her journals of, of her life um, as the oppression of the Jewish people was growing more and more. She somehow unlike many of us who would grow more and more skeptical about God during this time, she actually grew more and more conscious of God's hand on her and her life. And she had these journals, and in one of the journals she wrote, there must be someone to live through it all and bear witness to the fact that God lived, even in these times. And why should I not be that witness? This is what Rowan Williams says about her in Tokens of Trust. It is plain that she saw her belief as a matter of deciding to occupy a certain place in the world, a place where others could somehow connect with God through her. And this not in any self-congratulatory spirit or with any sense of being exceptionally holy or virtuous, but simply because she had agreed to take responsibility for God's believability. Which leads us to our last section of this text this really beautiful scene where Jesus is going to pray in the darkness by himself. I love these moments where Jesus does these very human, like devotional moments with God. 
he goes out to pray and his disciples come hunting him is what the text says. And they say, everyone is searching for you. And in his response to them, he says, yes, this is why I came. Everyone is searching for you. And this is why I came. He is who we are searching for. And he came to be found by us. This is like a fundamental theological statement that's happening here in this text. He came to heal us. Um, this is such a beautiful moment of saying who it is that Jesus is and who it is that we are in our relationship to each other. The thing that I can't not see when I read this text, though, is the kind of opposite end of the spectrum of this exact same thing happening towards the end of this gospel, where everyone is hunting for him. Everyone is looking for him, but not to be healed by him, but to crucify him. So when he says, this is what I came to do, we, we, the readers who know the full story, are meant to look and see the cry of the people needing healing and the cry of the people shouting, crucify him. And we find him trustworthy yet again in both of these scenarios because of his selfless attention to what is other than himself, his unending ability to be for us, no matter where we are on that spectrum of belief and trust. No matter what side we stand on, Jesus can do something with our yeses to him, and he can also overcome our noes to him. He is unflinchingly for you, is what the gospel story tells us. He makes himself known to us in the scriptures and in prayer and in through the lives of other people. And even through these like miraculous and supernatural moments that we get to have with him throughout our lives, God is always making himself known to us through Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, and asking us to place a little bit more trust in him. What captivates me about this story and just the story of the disciples in general, any story where we get, you know, an insight into their lives is fascinating. But one of the things that captivates me about this story is thinking about the end of these disciples' lives, these young boys we have here now and what they will become, that throughout Jesus's life, especially in the gospel of Mark, he's pretty uncharitable towards the disciples. It's where we get our ideas of them being kind of like dummies. They just don't seem to get anything that Jesus is trying to say. Um, they had a really complicated relationship with Jesus while he was alive, really wanting to, to know him and understand him and listen to him and still having issues of misunderstanding and even uh, denying him um, at the end of Peter's life and uh, at the end of many of their, or at the end of Jesus's life. Um, and so we have these really complicated kind of ups and downs with the disciples. And yet when Jesus was resurrected, when these four men experienced Jesus come back to life through his resurrection, that resurrection made a full affirmation of the person who Jesus was and the claims he made and was the ultimate trustworthy act of his life. We have these small moments of trust that are happening throughout the gospels and then you have the resurrection and what it did for these four men was fundamentally changed who they were and how they lived in the world. Three of these four disciples actually went on to be crucified, just like the one that, that, that they had found faithful in their life. Peter actually, legend has it, that he requested to be crucified upside down because he didn't want to be crucified in the same way Jesus was because he didn't find himself to be worthy enough for it. Something changed for these people in Jesus' resurrection. The trustworthiness was so much that their life wasn't even worth, um, their life was worth laying down for him. And a lot of us right now, I think, are having trouble trusting anything. Who do we trust with our news, you know? 
Who do we trust in terms of our friendships? A lot of us have lost friends. We're not trusting the church right now, a lot of us. Um, and even ourselves. It's really hard to trust ourselves right now in our own feelings. It feels hard to trust God. And yet what we find in Jesus you know, the exorcist, this storm calmer, the king of kings, all of these great big kind of ideas we're thinking about Jesus. What we find in him is also the guy who will walk into your home and he'll heal your mother-in-law of a fever. The same person who transforms communities, the same person who goes out to pray in the dark, who attends to the needs of his followers. This is the person that is for you and is working for your trust day in and day out, waiting for you to look for him, waiting for you to see him, asking you to put a little bit more faith in him. The one who is for you more than you are for yourself and for you in such a way that you can give of yourself to other people. That's what he's calling us to. Rowan Williams, again in his book, Tokens of Trust, calls Jesus a man for all seasons. This is what he says about him. A man for all seasons, a man for all climates and languages, capable of transforming any human situation by his presence. Jesus is embodying, making visible the purpose of God and the action of God. He brings to light peace and praise as our destiny, reconciliation with God and each other. He makes these things not just visible in himself, but possible for us. He is supremely the one who makes God credible and trustworthy. As Christians, this is why we do theology. This is why we ask hard questions and think dark, deep thoughts. It's so that in the midst of the uncertainty, we find Jesus and find him to be certain. we are gonna celebrate communion with you in a moment. Um, and you'll notice that we've changed a little bit of the way that we're doing things. We're, we're making it so that Matthew and I and possibly some of our other staff pastors as well will be out in front and able to pray for you after you receive communion. And this is in a way for us to, to be with you in this moment that feels so uncertain, that where it feels hard to trust things, that we wanna come alongside you and acknowledge that God is trustworthy and ask for him to reveal that in your life. This is why we wanna create that kind of sacred space on Sunday mornings. It feels really hard to send emails for help right now. You know, It feels hard to be vulnerable. It feels like we all kind of have to have um, thick skin in this moment. And so if that's tough for you to kind of reach out in that way, um, we, w we have created this space so that you, all you have to do is just come to our parking lot on Sunday morning and we can pray with you and be with you and for you um, and that we can find Jesus in that moment together. So we're really excited about that and we, um, we're praying for you even now and throughout the week. And I just want to pray for you before we close today. Jesus, you are a man for all seasons. You are a man for this season, even. As we all struggle to live through this global pain that we're in, Lord, may we find that we are searching for you. And may we find you, Lord. And when we find you, maybe find you trustworthy. Would you allow us to lean a little bit deeper into your heart, Lord? I ask you, Holy Spirit, to give us 
supernatural moments with you where we see you and find you and, and help us not to have hard hearts to write things off as coincidence. Help us to really, truly see you. Help the God moments in this church to really start to happen and flourish even in the midst of a dark season. We ask you for deep roots, Lord, of trust in you so that we can be the kinds of people who have healing leaking from us, going out into the world. It's who you've called us to be. Would you call us in this season, Lord, to be fishers of people, to find our trust in you and to be those who are trustworthy to the world. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. We'll see you in a minute.